0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And
1: it's Saturday, time to go into the vault for a classic episode. This one originally published on December 10th, 2019. And it's about the psychology of architecture. Now, we did a couple of episodes on this subject, so this is going to be the first one. The next one will be next weekend. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I thought we should start off today talking about a place where Romans get naked.
0: Let's do it. Or got naked. Would not be the uh, the first time. It w- oh, I
1: guess that's probably true. It, yeah. W- where, when else have we done this?
0: Oh, well, um, well, of course, we have another show called Invention, and we've definitely touched on the history of toilets. Oh, and, yes. And baths. And I think Roman baths have come up on the, the show before, and just Roman culture in general. Roman culture, like any culture, is going to contain a certain amount of nudity if not maybe a slightly enhanced amount of nudity
1: yeah it's, it's human life it's culture it's bare bottoms
0: yeah. uh so the baths of caracalla
1: they are these beautiful ruins in the city of rome they were built sometime in the early 3rd century beginning under the emperor septimus severus and they were finished during the reign of his son the emperor caracalla now these were public baths that operated for hundreds of years i think they were in operation till sometime in the 6th century And the interior space of these baths, it doesn't remain enclosed now. The ruins are, you know, you can see some like – you can see columns and there's actually a lot of uh, vertical structure still there. But, uh, you know, they don't have the roofs anymore and that kind of thing. But uh, the interior space in these uh, baths originally when they were in operation was palatial with these huge vaulted cathedral-like ceilings and huge open halls. And apparently they inspired the design of the original Penn Station in New York – Uh, But there was a quote I wanted to read that comes from the American architect Louis Kahn. Louis Kahn was at one point a professor of architecture at Yale, uh, but he was also known for tons of iconic original designs such as the campus of the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in San Diego. Uh, Robert, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it's one of the strangest looking Hmm. college campuses I've ever seen. And it's kind of beautiful in a weird way. It's got these buildings that look kind of like glass and concrete accordions, you know, with these strange kind of angles goals coming in. Okay. Uh, But uh, anyway, uh, Lewis Kahn talking about the baths of Caracalla, he says, if you look at the baths of Caracalla, we all know that we can bathe just as well under an eight-foot ceiling as we can under a 150-foot ceiling. But there's something about a 150-foot ceiling that makes a man a different kind of man. Hmm. And... I wonder about this. Like, uh, well, first of all, I just wonder: Would you literally wash yourself differently under an 150 foot ceiling if you're like taking a if you're taking a bath in a cathedral? Does that affect the bath at all?
0: Well, I, I have to say, I can't. I don't really have a, a good basis of comparison here because I think I've bathed pretty much exclusively in uh, like non amphitheater environments. Uh-huh. Uh, but on the other hand, I certainly. I can certainly think about swimming pools and sure. generally when I get in, in a swimming pool, it's either open air or it does have a very high ceiling, which is certainly part of the experience and the idea of swimming and one of these sort of uh, like old-timey basement pools or mm-hmm. like a, one of those like sometimes you see like an image of a of a, a small swimming environment on a submarine or something
1: have you ever seen the swimming pool in the basement of the Biltmore house yes okay this so is an example creepy
0: looking yeah, i, I can't imagine I swimming swim there, there. Yeah. yeah
1: it's so enclosed it feels like you're going into an underwater cave where you'll be hunted by glowing jellyfish until you die yeah
0: besides that's that's Mason Verger's uh, swimming pool i don't want i don't
1: want to <laughs> swim there uh, but yeah, I mean, so we we've talked before about some of the possible psychological effects of, you know, bathroom-related architectural features. I remember when we did the episode of our other show, Invention, about the invention of the toilet. I, I remember thinking, like, does the location and shape and design of the place where you go to defecate shape your feelings about these body functions? Like, do people who go to the bathroom with a flush toilet inside their house tend to have different attitudes on average? Uh, towards say scatological humor or things like that, than people who would use say a wooden outhouse or an open pit
0: latrine or any other way of going to the hmm. bathroom. Well, certainly, urinating outside uh, under the right circumstances, obviously, um, like in the woods, mm-hmm. uh, is is a totally different experience than than urinating inside of a restroom or into a, a urinal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say it is it is overall a better experience. Uh, I've never really stopped <laughs> to really consider why, but it does feel better to urinate in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, assuming that. It is the ideal sort of nature, not say you know, uh, at a bus stop or, um, or or even in the woods on say, like at a dark rainy evening, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to draw too direct an analogy because I'm sure extremely different things are going on. But I mean, you watch the way that dogs urinate in their environment, and that's like a that's like a. Um you know, territory marking and information conveying thing, at least in Mm -hmm. some cases for dogs. Uh, I'm not saying humans do the same thing, but you got to wonder maybe, I don't know if there's some kind of like instinctual preference for some types of uh, expansive urination behavior as opposed to enclosed urination behavior. I don't know.
0: Well, or uh, certainly the power to urinate where you do not live or where you are not currently residing, Mm -hmm. Uh, like that is ultimately more Natural than urinating within a shelter that you live in, uh, in in terms of the grand uh, history of uh, humanity, and so already we're 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 getting we're dealing with this with this duality, this dichotomy rather of um, of life indoors, life in created environments, and of course life in nature, in the natural world. Uh, And that's, we're going to keep coming back to this as we discuss for two episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, the psychological power of architecture. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah. So I want to come back to uh, Louis Kahn's question, like the idea of whether bathing in a cathedral like building with a huge high ceiling has, it sort of creates a different kind of person or creates a different kind of mindset than bathing in a normal bathroom like most people would
0: today. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and of course we can take this and apply it to just about every aspect of life.
1: Right, of course. I mean, we're, we're not just talking about bathing; it's it's about our lives. And, you know, in the year twenty nineteen, probably most of the people listening to this podcast are going to going to be spending the majority of their lives in and around artificial environments created by humans, rather than living you know in the natural environment. This can't be psychologically and culturally ir- irrelevant, right? So, so yeah, we want to talk about the hidden psychological and cultural impacts of the buildings that we live in and around. I think we've before considered the ways that uh, culture and human psychology – shape architecture right you know like the, like human drives toward building certain kinds of buildings but how does it work the other way around how does architecture affect our minds and our societies
0: yeah you know there's a there's, an, there's a there's a, a famous quote by Winston Churchill uh, from a speech that he was giving uh, uh, you know regarding you know reconstruction uh, and uh, he said quote we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us
1: well yeah of course this is a lot of what we end up discussing on invention right and not just like why we why humans created a certain invention, but how that invention turned around and shaped society.
0: Absolutely. At the very least, it's something you have to look at all the time. Yeah. (laughs) But also, uh, these new objects, new technologies, they give us new ways to think about ourselves. So, first of all, let's talk about that which architecture imitates, and indeed, what all of our human-designed and human-created buildings and structures and architectural uh, objects are made out of, and that is, of course, the natural world. Uh Uh-huh. So to state the obvious – natural environments have an effect on us. Uh, oh. I mean, yeah, that's putting it
1: mildly. Yeah. Like, the natural environments
0: created us. That's uh, right. The whole process of evolution is being shaped by the environment. Yeah, we are made out of it as well. Uh, the environment sustains us. Uh, and uh, so just if we can just think back to, if, if you took a hike recently, um, uh, which uh, I was fortunate enough to, to, to do recently, to take a, a hike through the wilderness, um, just think about what that experience was was like. All the ways that it sustained you. The, the air didn't just feel nice. It allowed you to breathe. The sudden did, sun didn't just feel warm on your skin. It provided you with vitamin D. You exposed yourself to a host of microbes that influence your inner dimensions and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and contributed to your, your microbial health. Now- Your distant ancestors might have well engaged on a similar walk through the woods or through the wilderness, whatever is coming into your mind here, Uh, and they would have been breathing, they would have been absorbing sunlight, and they would have been encountering microbes as well, but they uh, would have also looked with a keen eye for the various elements that would have truly sustained them, flora that might be gathered, rocks and stones that might be used in tool construction, and fauna or the signs of fauna that could be killed for meat uh, and or organic construction. Uh, um, elements, things that could be utilized, again, in their t- their tool making and their shelter and their clothing. Mm-hmm. And they might have uh, had a keen eye as well for environmental conditions that were advantageous or detrimental to their survival, fresh water, caves, natural springs in which to bathe, um, hollows that might afford protection, heights of hill or tree that might provide a strategic vantage point places to hide, places where the enemy might dwell, and places of potential mundane and sacred importance as well. Mm -hmm. And it's argued that a lot of these observations are still active in us, submerged as we embark on such a walk or a hike through the woods, or spend any amount of time in a natural domain, or even just a place that is cultivated to have those properties, like a you know, a, a finely manicured uh, city park, that sort of thing. Uh, such environments fully capture our array of senses, senses that of course, evolve to aid us in nature. Nature and returns to nature, therefore, have long been thought of Uh, as having healing powers over us, both mentally and physically.
1: Yeah, and this recalls part of uh, what we talked about when we did an episode on uh, E.O. Wilson's concept of biophilia, which is a hypothetical innate tendency in humans to focus on life and lifelike processes instead of on, you know, the the unnatural synthetic types of objects. Uh, And citing the hypothesis here, by the way, is not an indication that we assume it to be coherent or correct. If you want the fuller take, we did an episode on it that also covered criticisms of the idea. But if you recall, one major avenue of evidence that Wilson, and others called upon to support it was about the shape of ideal landscapes. Mm. You know, there was basically this concept of the environment of evolutionary adaptedness that animals tend not to be adapted to live anywhere on Earth, but to a particular landscape that shaped their genes. And they would have had preferences within that landscape of, you know, things they like to be around that make it easier to survive. And as such, like their brains should have ways of telling them to look for that type of landscape, look for the place that you're most adapted to. Uh, and so it turns out that there are certain things that lots of humans seem to show preferences for With uh, when, the, when they're presented with different options of landscapes. People tend to like open spaces with low grasses interspersed with copses of trees. Uh, they like the trees to look like trees that could maybe be climbed. They like to be able to see water nearby. They like to be able to see Uh, uh, animal or bird life and greenery. They like to be able to see pathways extending into the distance. Uh, And apparently, at least according to the hypothesis, like this landscape type is widely regarded as beautiful, even by people who might now live in places that don't have this kind of landscape. You know, you might live in the Arctic tundra or in the in the desert or something where you don't see landscapes like this. And yet still people living in these other places often love to see that kind of imagery
0: right and and it's often brought up that this is why uh many of the the more famous and beloved landscape paintings or paintings that aren't even specifically landscape but have a landscape element to them you know such as um uh well you might take um uh, was it is it Bruegel the elders um uh fall of icarus Uh, i think so yeah Uh, where you know the 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 subject is Icarus falling from the heavens on his failed wings, but it is but it is it is a piece of art that is predominantly concerned with landscape.
1: Yes, and now these kind of preferences, of course, this could be interpreting them wrong. You know, maybe there are other reasons people like things like this. Maybe people don't even widely like them as much as it's alleged that they do. But if this is correct, it, it seems like not hard to imagine why we have a keen eye for that sort of stuff. Access to water is important for life. Mm. Access to, you know, greenery and animals are important to, you know, for food and for shade and for all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's nice to be able to see from a high vantage point, as you mentioned earlier, that's like a, a safety security kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, or if, if some sort of animal were to chase you, it's nice to think that you might be able to seek uh, refuge in, uh, you know, in the, the, the limbs of a tree or at the top of a jungle gym, that sort of thing. Yes, a
1: Climbable tree, yeah. So whether or not there's there's truth to this whole connection between biophilia and the supposed uh, landscape of evolutionary adaptedness there is certainly the, the the fact that we, our brains were shaped by our ancestral environments, and it should not be surprising to us that we have preferences for certain types of visually identifiable features of environments as
0: opposed to others. Absolutely. Now, um, I mentioned earlier that there's this idea that, that spending time in nature has a beneficial effect on us mentally and physically. And this is a, this is a very Old idea that you'll, you'll find this uh, in a number of different cultures. Uh, one one great example is forest therapy in Japan. Mm-hmm. According to Rebecca uh, Lawton, writing for uh, Ian Magazine uh, in an article titled "The Healing Power of Nature," uh, she points out that you know this this age old tradition calls for the individual to walk, sit, gaze, and exercise amid the trees, as well as to eat local foods and use local hot springs. And uh, and actually, it is a tradition that apparently factors into different studies because it's um it's it's just a, apparently a, like a really good example of okay let's see what happens when people who are suffering from one ailment or another take to the woods for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, she points out that uh, studies indicate there are about twenty one possible pathways to improved health via exposure to nature. Exposure impacts uh, depression and anxiety, anxiety as well. Plus, studies show that just three days and two nights in a woodland environment can increase immune system functions and. Boost well-being for up to seven days Uh, so you know the notion that we feel better in nature is firmly supported by science she writes
1: uh yeah this is something that's been argued by a lot of people over the years Uh, there was a study that i I know we've looked at in at least one previous episode might have been the biophilia episode um that was by ulrich published in the journal science in 1984 called view through a window may influence recovery from surgery and basically what this found is that people patients in hospitals who could see trees like greenery through a window had better recovery times like they got out of the hospital earlier and they used fewer pain medications than people who could not see such things who were instead faced with a view of a brick wall.
0: Yeah, yeah and uh, other studies have also pointed to just having like a landscape painting uh, around to be exposed to uh, can have uh, some degree of effect as well. No, I think it'd
1: be important to point out that I, I assume that the view of nature thing probably has Stronger effects on certain types of things than others, right? right? I would imagine that it probably especially has effects on treatment outcomes that are uh, subjectively limited, like the perception of pain. And th- there, you can see also in uh, people taking less pain medication for whatever they were suffering from when they could see nature. The idea there, I guess, would be that you know, the view of nature somehow changes your mind state that makes pain less painful,
0: right? And uh, and of course, and we'll get into this more in the second episode. But just because you have a room of the view of nature, uh, that, I mean, that does not solve all your problems, obviously. Right, of course. Now, another paper I was looking at, a 2007 overview from Villarde et al., published in Urban Forestry and Urban Greening, points out that exposure to landscapes in particular have been shown to reduce stress, improve attention capacity, facilitate recovery from illness, um, help with physical uh, well-being in the elderly, and influence behavioral changes and improve mood and general well-being. So uh, all this, suffice to say, it, and, and this is going to sound, again, like one of those sort of hippie, hippie overstatements of the obvious here, but nature is simply where we are meant to be, uh, which, again, it's just crazy to even point that out because it, it raises the question, where else could we be but in nature? <laughs> well, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Humans steadily created an answer to that question. Uh, shelters, uh, which, of course, we have to think about shelters, too. Like, what did a shelter originally do? It provided us this place to go when... Yeah. <laughs> it was better not to be in nature. Well, yeah, it's safety. It's protection from the
1: elements yep. and it's protection from predators and enemies. It's something that, uh, you know, protects you from the weather, of course, but then also it's something you can put your back to yeah. and uh, there, and have a more defensible or securable position from threats.
0: Yeah, in a way, it was like a, a kind of way of hacking the environment. Mm-hmm. Like there's a certain type of environmental condition that is ideal for me during, say, a rainstorm. Mm-hmm. But I cannot find that everywhere when I need it, but what if I, by use of my 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 limbs and my strength and my tools and my ingenuity, if I'm able to craft the natural world into the shape I need when I need it. I can make a cave. Exactly. I don't
1: need to find a cave.
0: So it begins there, but of course that evolves and it rises to the level of camps and villages, and this steadily evolves into to the cities of today, and today is proposed geological age the anthropocene is defined by the transformation of the, the natural world which includes the transformation brought by cities and cityscapes and the urban sprawl all around them along with massive environmental alterations that include deforestation extinctions mass extinctions and of course climate change right
1: now of course we're not the only animals that engineer our own environments like beavers of course our our favorite rusty tooth buddies they are uh you know, famous for engineering their own environments, beaver dams built out of, you know, wooden debris and stuff from the surrounding environment, can become enormous, like landscape transforming projects. There's one example of, uh, in a wilderness region of northern Alberta, Canada, there is a beaver dam that appears to be over 850 meters long. and oh, It's about wow. half a mile.
0: I, that's uh, almost like a beaver city.
1: I didn't, I had no idea. Y- yes, it's like a beaver city. It is so massive that it can actually be seen from satellites photos. <laughs> in fact, for a while, the aerial photos taken of it were the only way that it had been seen by humans that we know of. And since it's not like right by a road or a city, it's in this very inaccessible part of the Canadian wilderness that's like hard to get through. You know, there's, there's no road that goes there. Uh, but in 2014, an amateur explorer from New Jersey named Rob Mark plotted a route and actually made the arduous hike through the mosquito-filled marshes and forests to get there and see it in person. And uh, he did. He, he got there in 2014. Fourteen. Uh, apparently, the beavers have been working on this dam since the 1970s. Or oh so. wow! Yeah, and it's huge. It's like the size of a, a small town. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say city. I mean, for beavers proportionally, maybe it's a city. Uh, but yeah, th- this is like a, a settlement size. But um, uh, beaver dams, otherwise, are fascinating environmental engineering projects. So you know, one interesting purpose they serve. I was just reading about it. Never read about before was uh, when a beaver dams a waterway. The reservoir that fills up behind the dam naturally grows deeper than the original waterway. And this deepening helps ensure that when the winter freeze comes, the water is less likely to freeze all the way through. Hmm. And this cold but unfrozen water at the bottom of the artificial lake serves as a useful place for the beavers to store and access food throughout the winter.
0: That's interesting. I, I had no
1: idea either. So anyway, all, all that just emphasized that humans aren't the only animals that alter their environments, that, that engineer environments in which to live and change the surrounding landscape. But I think you'd be very safe in assuming that humans... Alter the natural environment to a much greater extent and in a greater variety of ways, both deliberate and accidental than any other
0: animal. And in a shorter amount of time. Yes. Because uh, we've explored on the show before, you know, vast uh, geological changes that have been brought about uh, via the emergence of life. uh, But we're talking about changes that can be brought on in thousands, hundreds of years or even decades. Of course. Uh, And so, of course, one
1: of the perhaps most self-defeating ways that we engineer the natural environment is in creating these living and working spaces for ourselves almost entirely out of artificial elements and structures. And so you are an animal, but the chances are good that you live and work mostly inside some kind of box with a lot of flat, hard surfaces and 90-degree angles and how do you like it?
0: <laughs> well, it has its ups and downs, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, no, I mean, I, I don't want to undersell the use of I mean, it's good to have a place that you can secure and be safe in. It's good to mm-hmm. have a place where you're protected from the elements. That's all good stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is nice to be able to have a temperature-controlled box, especially if you are in a part of the world or in a, it's a time of the year in which uh, the outside uh, conditions are not ideal, especially for say sitting around in front of a computer, otherwise motionless. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there are ways that the boxes could be better. Oh well, the box can always be better, right? Because uh, <laughs> the ideal box resides in the, the what the realm of forms, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah so we 've we have both the the natural environment now and the built environment. Uh, the later of which is the design domain of architecture. Uh, architecture comes to us uh, the word comes from the Greek architecton, which means chief creator. Uh, we remake the world, uh, but of course we experience the world through our evolved sensibilities for the natural. And hopefully, uh, the architect of a given building designed it with at least some of these sensibilities in mind. Uh, but, but of course, this is not always the case. Yeah,
1: hopefully, but
0: maybe often not.
1: Right. All right. So maybe we can take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk about ways that architecture impacts us in our minds. <laughs>
0: All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about architecture, of course. Uh, now, just of course, a reminder: Joe and I are not architects, uh, <laughs> but uh, but we know that some of you out there are architects or have some sort of architectural background. So. Oh,
1: that's right. We've heard from yeah. some architects before.
0: So, as always, we're happy uh, to uh, to hear from our listeners on these topics, to be corrected uh, as need be. Uh, but but generally, you know, if you just have additional uh, info to add, additional examples, especially as we start getting into uh, a few examples of some of the. the the architecture uh, and architectural principles that we'll be discussing here. Before the break, we were talking about the the natural world and how we've evolved to thrive in the natural world and how our senses are there to help us navigate that natural world. But now, of course, we live uh, to a very large degree in an unnatural world of all these various uh, boxes uh, that we have designed, that we have built out of uh, naturally occurring uh, materials.
1: Hashtag box life. Yes. So that quote I mentioned at the beginning of the episode uh, by Louis Kahn, the American architect, about being a different kind of person under a 150-foot ceiling, uh, that is uh, referenced in a 2017 book by Sarah Williams Goldhagen, who was the architecture critic for the New, uh, New Republic for many years. She previously, I think, taught at Harvard Graduate School, School of Design, and now she's an author. And in 2017, she published a book called Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment, shapes our lives. And uh, uh, this book makes the case that the built environments around us have profound impacts on our minds and our well-being, and this relationship between architecture and the quality of human life is undervalued in, in the building uh, the building world and real estate development. And she argues that good building design should not just be thought of as kind of like an extravagance or a friv- frivolous opulence. You know, architecture isn't like getting a vanity plate for your car. It's actually a social. Good or a public service, one that directly contributes significantly to the quality of life of, of people who live in buildings and in urban environments actually originally got interested in talking about the subject that we're tackling today because I read a 2017 article in CityLab, which featured an interview uh, with Sarah Williams Goldhagen promoting her book. And so Goldhagen mentions that she was inspired to research and write this book after reading an older book that we've referenced on this show before, uh, Metaphors We Live By, published in 1980 by the cognitive linguist George Lakoff and the philosopher Mark Johnson. Uh, I don't remember what episode that came up in, but uh, – Maybe in one we did about like embodied cognition. Yeah, that would make sense. Uh, So it talks about that. It's a book about the role of metaphors in our lives and our thinking. And one concept that's explored in the book is the role of our physical bodies in physical space as a key metaphor for understanding our thoughts and emotions. So, for example, happy is up and sad is down. Isn't that kind of strange? Like why would happy be up and sad be down? Hmm. But it seems like there's a, there's a sort of brute physical reality to those associations, right? When you're happy, you your posture
0: literally lifts. You come up
1: and you're, you're more upright. When you're
0: sad, you droop. This also reminds me of, I think we've discussed studies on the show before, about uh, walking around looking more up or looking down. Uh, mm. The idea of, like, looking up, you're more open to new experiences. Right. You're looking down, you're more concerned with, you know, what you may be tripping over or stepping in. Yeah. That uh, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, totally. But, I mean, just think about the ways that these types of spatial metaphors and body-related metaphors utterly pervade our abstract and emotional thinking. The way you can get over it, get over something. What does that mean? Like mm-hmm. it's as if you are standing over a person or an animal or something having conquered it Yeah, or you're able to leap over a problem and like, you know, get past it. Uh, I, I guess that's other, another literal space metaphor. Um, and so th- this idea inspired her to think more about the ways that our physical space, the physical spaces that we occupy, literally shape our thinking about our emotional lives. And so, and it turns out there's actually a good amount of research that already highlights this fact. And so she explores a lot of this in her book. And uh, uh, Goldhagen gives some examples of ways that – Current building and architecture uh, projects often undervalue things that we already know about the human experience of built environments. And one example she gives is overall form of buildings versus the texture of surfaces. Uh, so in this interview, she says, quote, Very often in cities, the overall form of buildings is given much more priority than materials, surfaces, textures and details. What we know about the way we appropriate and experience places is that the overall form of a place is not what most dramatically affects our experience of it. It's more what psychologists call the surface based cues. Hmm. Uh, So I was looking for research to support this. And I think here she's referring to uh, work including the following study, one by Jonathan S. Kant and Melvin Goodale in uh, Cerebral Cortex in 2006 called Attention to Form or Surface Properties modulates different regions of human occipitotemporal cortex, and so it, the the basic idea is uh, Goldhagen writes that compared to overall forms of buildings research indicates that surface-based cues like materials and textures you know the kind of textures and details on walls and things like that elicit a more powerful quote whole body intersensory and emotional response that these kind of things might have a deeper access to our emotional well-being than say the overall shape of a building at large would
0: you know and this is something worth keeping in mind the next time anyone out there takes a small child to a museum where you're expressly told not to touch anything you know like (laughs) the Obviously, we need to connect with our environment and like touch, and uh, you know, and proper understanding of the physical surfaces of things is a, a big part of that.
1: Oh, you're saying like, yeah, yeah, like that. Uh, well, I think she's mainly talking about this in a visual sense, but mm-hmm. touch, obviously, the desire to touch extends from our desire to process surfaces. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that actually makes sense. Then, like a lot of like the details and surfaces and textures and materials that have the most emotional access to to our brains that, that have the, cause these deeper whole body feelings are things that we want to like get right up with and interact with directly. You can't really do that with like say the overall form of a skyscraper.
0: No, that's true. You can certainly come up and touch part of it, but it's not the full experience.
1: Totally. Uh, So uh, she's arguing sort of a a more perfectly tuned neuroarchitecture might pay more attention to what surfaces are made out of, uh, what physical details and accents they have on them than to the overall shape of the building. Though it's not like the overall shape of the building is meaningless. That that has important implications Mm -hmm. too, which we'll explore more as we go on. Uh, But a few more ideas uh, discussed in a review of her book I was reading in Architect Magazine by Blaine Brownwell. Goldhagen also says that architecture, to better suit our minds, should strive for a kind of what she calls patterned complexity. So this means it's neither complex in a way that's confusing as to the building's purpose, right? You don't want a, a building that's just kind of assaulting your senses and you don't know where to go or what to do. right? But at the same time, you don't, she says, you don't want buildings that are simple in ways that make them unnatural, boring, flat, and deadening. Uh, th- these have negative emotional qualities. The way I interpret what she's saying here is I, I think it means you're interested in, if you're trying to create a building for, you know, for good cognitive, mental, emotional health of the people in it, you're searching for the kinds of surface complexity that you might find in pleasing natural environments. So making buildings that most resemble the features mirroring the structure of the surface qualities of trees, the river, the rock outcropping and the overlook and things like that. And I absolutely find that this rings true to me in the buildings that I like the most. Yeah, Like uh, just before we came into the uh, studio, we were looking at a picture of the, the Boston City Hall, uh, which I know is a, is a controversial building. I think like it, – so it's a, an example of brutalist architecture and some people hate it and some people like it. At least from the angle I was looking at a lot of the photos of it, I really kind of like it because – it has uh It has some kind of varied size elements that have some verticality to them that somehow make this big concrete building in some ways look like a copse of trees that you could go into it's almost kind of a forest,
0: yeah, you showed me an image of it and um, it, it, when I look at it, at a at a building like that, I find myself on some level like probably not. You know, you know, overtly, but at least uh, subconsciously, I'm thinking, oh, well, there's a place I could hide. There's another place I could hide. Yes, wouldn't it be neat to sort of lay up there, or to you know, to, to camp on that little uh, ledge there? You know, like all these little um, observations are taking place, even if I'm not actively thinking about what it would be like to, to scale the building.
1: I think you're exactly right. I respond to the same kinds of things: the nooks and crannies that make a natural environment pleasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, l- the idea of rocks that you could get up on top of little forests that you could wander into. That stuff feels good. And I think even the unnatural, even the architectural versions of them made out of synthetic materials
0: feel good in the same kinds of ways. Yeah, like uh, one example that comes to mind, it's it's neat to see a hill or a, you know outcropping or something or even a mountain and be able to sort of plot the course of ascension. Yes. But likewise, you can take a, a, what is ultimately a very unnatural environment, say the interior of the Guggenheim Museum, Mm -hmm. which is like what this, uh, I'm not even, I don't even have the architectural terminology to properly describe it, but it's kind of like a spiral ramp up around a large central space, right? Yes. And uh, that's not something you would find in nature, but when you look up from the bottom of that, uh, the interior of that museum, you see a path of ascension. You see this, this uh, winding trail going up towards the top and there's something in you that must traverse it.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's the same reason that we respond so well to tall buildings with terraces. Mm -hmm. you know like stepped terraces look very pleasing to us I think maybe because there's some kind of instinctual we can't know this for sure but maybe because there's some part of the brain that's looking at that and seeing like that's a part that you could climb up to and then you could get from there to here
0: yeah well it goes back to the ziggurat the ziggurat is an artificial mountain Uh and uh, and therefore something that is scalable and so ziggurat like uh, uh, elements in buildings uh, there's something irresistible about them and uh, as far as ledges go we were talking about this before in uh, the Chrysler Building in New York City. Mm-hmm. Beautiful skyscraper, you know, classic skyscraper. But there's something about those those eagles at the top, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at that and you can't help but imagine yourself up there standing on, on it or at least, you know, uh, clutching it, <laughs> crawling out on it. Sure. And, and, and likewise, you see in fiction various scenarios where a superhero or some other figure is standing there. Like we can't help All but the imagine time. Yeah.
1: yeah, you got to put Batman there. You got to put Spider-Man there.
0: Yeah. Like sometimes it's probably too crap. Like a superhero goes up there for their <laughs> selfie and it's just overrun. Yeah. And then Q the winged serpent comes flying out, I and mean, then you never know what's going to happen.
1: But as much as I think it, in some ways it makes sense to try to create buildings that in various ways mimic natural landscapes and natural architecture of things like trees and forests and mountains and rock outcroppings and all that kind of thing. I think it's also uh, equally important and of course Goldhagen makes this point that there's an essential value for literal physical nature as well like green spaces in cities full of natural vegetation.
0: Absolutely and there's a, there's a lot of uh, research to bear that out some of which we'll get into in the next episode.
1: Yes totally. I mean she cites research uh, we already mentioned this one that uh, hospital patients uh, have been documented in some cases to have quicker recoveries and take less pain medication when they can see natural vegetation like trees um But there's also research apparently that she cites that access to green spaces improves cognitive outcomes for school children, including reduced stress.
0: Yeah. Uh, One thing – this is one of those scenarios though, of course, where you look at major cities – and and really, I th- like if you think of major cities that you've traveled to, or even minor cities, uh, tr- try to think about your key memories. So, uh, for me, anyway, I find my key memories are also are often visiting the green spaces. Yes, you know, like when I think of New York, I think of uh, of Central Park. You know, right. uh, I think of, uh, for, for instance, uh, Guangzhou or, or Nanjing, China. When I was in both of those cities, it was it's the parks that are that are the public spaces, the green spaces that that really burn in my memory the most
1: when I was recently in London. I mean, of course, I love the the interesting interior spaces of the cathedrals and the museums. But one of the main things that sticks in my head is walking through like the palace gardens mm-hmm. that just had like
0: trees and open green spaces and and lots of birds flocking about. And of course, the thing with cities though is uh, yes, there are some wonderful examples of of uh, of green spaces and in many cases public green spaces. But then there are also plenty of examples of portions of some of those same. Cities that maybe don't have the same amount of green space, that don't have as much public access to green space. And there you see the, the the flip side of the equation.
1: Well yeah, and I think one way of reframing this is that not having access to green space is a real like cost to people. Mm-hmm. Like that they pay a price for this mentally, emotionally, psychologically, for not having access to, to to trees and grass and the sounds of birds. I mean, as much as a I guess that sounds like a cliche, but uh, it, it appears that this really matters.
0: Yeah, it, but it's, it's easy for, I think, developers and just people in general to forget this for periods of time. Yeah. And then you have to have individuals come along and say, you know, we need to put green space back in. We need to plant trees uh, uh, here in Atlanta. This was, uh, I understand, to be the, have been the case for a while, uh, where in the downtown area, you just, just had a, a shrinking amount of green space. Mm-hmm. And then you had organizations like uh, Trees Atlanta came a- along and uh, and you know, took up uh, the initiative of of planting more trees and uh, and making sure that there there were trees around, there were green spaces, there was room for nature to exist in the the, you know, the, the sort of concrete environments that we were creating.
1: Yeah, and so I think that, that's got to be a crucial part of architecture. I mean, I guess that's different from just when you're making a building. That's more broadly like urban planning and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Though I guess it also has to do with, you know, like you've got a certain plot of land and you're developing it. How much of that plot of land will you devote to just like having space where you can plant trees in? Yeah. A lot of times, I'm sure developers would look at that and say, well, that's just wasted revenue. You could fill that in with oh, the yes.
0: units you can fill. Yeah, we see this all the time. I'm sure a lot of our We see this in Atlanta, especially where um, a a lot is purchased and then a developer will come in and they will build just as much, absolutely as much house as is is possible, as is physically possible on the lot. And, you know, lawn green space trees be Mm. damned. And then, you know, someone comes along and they, they buy it, but it's just, it's all house.
1: Now, speaking about the the psychological effects of of built environments and architecture, I, I want to come back to the thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Remember that quote from Lewis Kahn talking about bathing in a palatial setting versus in a regular bathtub in a little room? Something about a 150-foot ceiling just makes a person a different kind of person. If a person is different under a majestic high ceiling, how and why? Like, is there any empirical evidence for that other than your hunch And if so, why would that be true? So I want to actually look at a few studies here.
0: All right, let's do it.
1: Uh, So the first one I want to look at is by uh, Vartanian et al. In the Journal of Environmental Psychology, published in 2015, uh, called Architectural Design in the Brain, Effects of Ceiling Height and Perceived Enclosure on Beauty Judgment and Approach Avoidance Decisions. Uh, So there were some basic findings here. First of all, rooms with high ceilings were judged as more beautiful than rooms with low ceilings. I think there should be no surprise there. I mean, that just totally goes with our intuition. You think of like the cathedrals and the high Mm -hmm. ceiling palaces tend to be more beautiful. But more interesting, through the use of additional psychological testing and neuroimaging with fMRI, rooms with high ceilings were shown to elicit activity in, quote, Structures involved in visuospatial exploration and attention in the dorsal stream. Uh, So the dorsal stream is a concept that's part of a hypothesis in neuroscience known as the two-stream hypothesis. Basically, the idea is that uh, the brain has two main routes – For processing perception of visual or auditory stimuli, you get the ventral stream, uh, also known as the what stream or the what process, and that's used primarily for identifying and recognizing things. What is that? And then you've got the dorsal stream, also known as the where stream or the where process. And that's associated with uh, plenty of other things, but primarily with assessing where a perceived object is in space relative to the viewer and in guiding action through space. So it seems that compared to rooms with lower ceilings, this study found that open rooms with higher ceilings engage brain structures associated with exploring spaces, whereas open rooms uh, open rooms were also more likely to engage parts of the brain that perceive visual motion so I think open rooms would seem to prime you to see things moving around. Meanwhile, the same study found that more enclosed spaces tended to trigger avoidance behaviors and stimulate, quote, exit decisions, Hmm. as well as showing increased activation in the anterior mid-cingulate cortex. And the authors write, quote, This suggests that a reduction in perceived visual and locomotive permeability characteristic of enclosed spaces might elicit an emotional reaction that accompanies exit decisions. So if I'm interpreting this right, I think that's a technical way of saying that more enclosed spaces are likely on average to trigger less activity in the brain that says let's explore and more activity in the structure of the brain that says it's time to get out. Hmm. Now, I think that's really interesting, the idea that higher ceilings might sort of trigger activity in the brain that says it's time to explore, time to map, time to, time to get into it. Uh, but I also wonder how this this connects intention with the idea that smaller spaces can sometimes be perceived as say cozy, Uh, like the perception of coziness somehow seems like the opposite of an exit or avoidance motivation. And yet you can clearly think of times when enclosed spaces are cozier than a big open space.
0: Yeah. But they tend to, when I think of them, I tend to think of environments where I'm going to like climb into a bed or a sleeping bag or something, you know, Yeah. as opposed to somewhere where I'm going to engage in something more like work Mm -hmm. uh you know like if i'm gonna snuggle up with a really good book then yes i might think of some uh, of being in some casket like chamber on a train or a ship or, (laughs) or so forth
1: yeah, that's an interesting that it has to do with what types of of things you're about to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but like, but like for instance, a kitchen. Uh, I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, I wish I had a cozier kitchen, right?" In which yeah. to, uh, yeah, you know, uh, in, in, in engage my culinary exploration. No, people want bigger kitchens. Uh, they probably envision a kitchen with a with you know a reasonably high ceiling. Probably maybe not a cathedral ceiling, but uh, I don't think anybody gets excited about a, a super tight. Little ship galley of a of a kitchen.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, it's like it's almost like you want big spaces to to do work and to think about big questions and to think of, you know and to to explore ideas, and then you want small spaces in order to have privacy and feel secure and sleep.
0: Yeah. And I guess it also has to do with the scale of the work, right? It's yeah. one thing to think about, say, painting miniatures and being in a tiny, cozy uh, space. Mm-hmm. But when you're cooking, you're doing something that probably is making making a mess and engaging uh, you know, a few different appliances, et cetera.
1: Well, it may have to do with whether or not you're trying to be creative. That'll come in in the study I want to talk about in a second. Uh, but another thing that, that's in tension here, I think, uh, for example, Goldhagen refers to some research that suggests quite unsurprisingly, that closed spaces give people a sense of refuge and security. Okay, th- that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I think of how many like office workers, including maybe some people in this room, yearn for the days of cubicles and yeah. little offices as opposed to the modern scourge of open office plans where you are supposed to, on paper, benefit from constant collaboration. But in fact, they just... Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but for many people, they clearly just make you feel distracted and on edge all the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was reading a little bit, about, bit about, about this as well. And it's one of those things where you can find some some material to back up either case, basically. Mm-hmm. And you can find individuals, I'm sure, with different experiences to back up either case. I also think it depends on what sort of work you're in. Yeah. Like to what extent is your work communal uh, between individuals or to what extent is it – you know. Uh, is it a situation where this this individual is doing their own thing for extended periods of time and it's better not to bother them? And that can vary, that not only varies from person to person and company to company, it can vary from department to department within a single entity, obviously, where maybe, maybe the advertising department of a, of a particular company is more about running from desk to desk and talking about what they're working on. Likewise, people who have more of a research role might need to just be, you know, have the blinders on.
1: Right, how much of your job involves the need for deep work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, but obviously there are going to be different effects and tendencies playing against each other in the design of interior spaces. There's clearly not a one-size-fits-all, like all interior spaces should be like X. Um, But yeah, one thing I was also wondering about... With the idea of uh, like approach versus avoidance behaviors uh, exploration motivation versus exit motivation, you know if we 're more likely to get the brain into exploration mode in rooms with high ceilings, could that have abstract implications? Could these exploration and exit behaviors also lead to broader emotions, motivations, and cognitive potential. And I did find at least one study that would seem to support this. This was by uh, Joan Myers-Levy and Rui Zhu, published in the Journal of Consumer Research in 2007, called The Influence of Ceiling Height, the Effects of Priming on the Type of Processing that People Use. And so uh, what happened here is that researchers found that even relatively small differences in ceiling height, say like the difference between an eight-foot ceiling and a 10-foot ceiling, these had noticeable effects on psychology and cognition. Uh, not very surprisingly, rooms with higher ceilings Primed people to think about words and concepts related to freedom, whereas rooms with lower ceilings were more likely to prime people to think about words and concepts related to confinement and they measured this uh, this priming effect by seeing like what types of words people were more likely to solve for in puzzles like anagrams hmm. a common way of, of testing for like priming on certain concepts and words you know are, are you already kind of like having this sort of thing in mind? Um, But more interestingly, the authors also suggested these broader cognitive effects that higher ceilings make people more likely to use abstract relational cognition, like thinking about the abstract relationships between ideas and things, whereas lower ceilings were more likely to make people think in terms of concrete objects and specific details. And I can think if they're correct about this, this makes me think obviously that you could have different types of workspaces being more suited to different kinds of work. Like the kind the kind of work where you need to be creative and think abstract things, you might want to have a room with a big high ceiling. The kind of work where you're focusing in on minute concrete details of things, you might want a smaller space with a lower ceiling.
0: So if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, you're, you're going to um, ask our employers for custom offices in which <laughs> there is a ceiling uh, that can be manipulated via remote control. Sure. Yeah. Raise and lower. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it makes sense to me.
1: Again, this does seem to roughly fit with personal experience. Like I can think of what happens when you go into a cathedral or a palatial atmosphere. I mean, it does tend to, in a way, sort of elevate one's thinking. Mm-hmm. You are more likely to think about big ideas in there somehow, at least in my experience.
0: No, I, that's, uh, I would say that's my experience as well, not only with, with – Human-made environments, mm-hmm. but even we've ta- we've talked before about say seeing the Grand Canyon or something like that. You yes. know, it is a lot to see a large empty space. It, that kind of environment summons, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of introspection and, and you know, th- th- thinking about it, eternity and so forth. Um, I mean, the, the big spaces have inspire big thoughts for some reason yeah Uh, but
1: at the same time I mean we were just talking about what kinds of work are are small spaces good for I mean I miss my cubicle from the old days Mm -hmm. especially at times when I want to like really zero in on like editing a document yeah you know that's It's almost like the the, the enclosure helps you stay on task with minute details of things.
0: Yeah, it almost literally becomes like like the blinders of a horse. Yeah. Like you can't just look up and see what everybody in the office is doing, uh, you know, and, and, and gaze up and inspect every little slight movement that occurs in your peripheral vision. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back.
1: All right. We're back. Uh, so we've been talking about the psychology of architecture, how the built environment uh, you know, influences us psychologically and how it shapes our lives. One other thing I was looking at was studies about uh, color and interior uh-huh.
0: spaces. Yeah, you have to paint it some color. You have to pick out some color of carpet. Oh, you don't necessarily
1: have to paint it. You could have just like, say, exposed raw concrete, right? Well, true. But even that is a choice in coloration. It is. Uh, so color psychology, we know we've talked about on the show before. It's a big field with a lot of color. Complicated and sometimes conflicting results. I think it's important in color psychology. I mean, I guess this is important for all things, but for some reason, it especially comes up in color psychology that like plenty of psychological effects, the effects of color on thinking, emotion, and motivation are not necessarily universal to the human animal. They can be influenced by
0: differences in cultural associations. Right, like a big one that I've read about before is red. Mm -hmm. Green and red have certain connotations, generally in American and Western uh, uh, individuals where you know, green is go, red is stop. So green is good, red is bad. But you, and, and so you might be inclined to utilize that in your technology in your app or what have you. But then if you translate that app or technology to a uh, Chinese market where uh, red has a strongly um, uh, you know, positive uh, color, it is a very noble color, like you would not associate red with a negative outcome uh, in Chinese culture.
1: Right. So if you are actually using color psychology research to shape the design of interior spaces, you would probably want to consider research done on like cultures – like the orig- the culture where you're making your building. Right. Um, so one example of something I came across was uh, a study from 2009 published in the journal Science by uh, Ravi Mehta and Rui called Blue or Red? Exploring the Effect of Color on Cognitive Task Performances. And this was a study looking at the color, uh, the the effects of color on cognitive performance. Without going deep into the details, all other things being equal, they found that red backgrounds tend to make us more likely to engage in avoidance behaviors. And uh, this was done among North Americans. So that might not be surprising that maybe you could have some like stop signs, stoplight associations at work there, Uh, but that red also enhances performance on detail-oriented tasks, such as specific recall of details in a memory exercise. Like if I give you um, a list of words to remember – You will get more words right in remembering them and recalling them later with a red background than with another colored background. But meanwhile, they found that blue backgrounds tend to enhance performance on creative tasks, uh, e.g. coming up with a list of creative uses for a mundane object like Hmm. a brick, Uh, Though there was some subjective judgment involved in evaluating those responses. They had like a panel of judges that were judging how creative the uses of the brick were. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I wouldn't take these results as ironclad, but if they're correct, if they're onto something here, one interesting association is the idea of a blue again with openness leading to creativity. So the idea of like uh, blue environments, especially those with the same kind of hue as a blue sky – making people more creative, and that might seem to connect to the idea of being more creative or exploration-oriented in open spaces, rooms with high ceilings. Mm. Now, we mentioned earlier uh, educational outcomes. One interesting thing I was reading uh, was uh, another review of the Goldhagen book. I was reading an education week by an author named uh, Sajan George. And this piece made reference to one of the most startling research findings that Goldhagen cites in in her book, which is, as as expressed by the author of this piece, quote, One study of 34 different British schools where uh, the six design parameters of color, choice, complexity, flexibility, light, and connectivity affected the students' learning progress by 25%. The difference in learning between the best and worst designed classrooms was equal to the progress of an average student over an entire academic year. oh wow, yeah, and so uh, with that kind of study, obviously an effect of that size I would be inclined to be skeptical about. you know I, you know you want to see that replicated a good amount, but even if the study somehow overstates the effect, even if the effect were only half that 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 's an amazing difference. Um, So the author of this piece suggests that some extrapolations from this research should be used in schools. Uh, Just one example they give is maybe – is it a good idea when students misbehave to send them to a room that is like almost intentionally made to bore them on purpose? You go to the Mm -hmm. detention room where you can sit and do nothing. Um, I mean maybe it would be better to have a kind of (laughs) – like reparative uh, discipline system where instead students who misbehave are sent to an outdoor green space with some vegetation in it. That that, That with the
0: free range children. The (laughs) free
1: range children. Exactly. I mean, that's that's an interesting suggestion to me. I I don't see any harm in trying things like that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I know where I would rather go if I were sent to detention. Right. Uh, the, The outdoor detention garden sounds much better than the detention chamber.
1: Uh, Another specific example about built environments from Goldhagen's book that the author here mentions, uh, and I thought this was interesting, was that there are apparently some documented benefits to, quote, repeating patterns with respites from that same pattern, which can stimulate problem-solving capacity. And this is very specific, and I like it. I I think I know exactly what this is referring to. Like when you see a building with – pleasing irregularity in patterned elements you Mm. know uh, so you have uh, I guess an example would be like you say you've got a row of windows you've got seven windows with alcoves all in a row and then suddenly where you'd expect the next one there's not one there's like a protruding feature rather than a window and then the windows begin again and maybe this happens at different levels with uh, different irregular variation in that pattern
0: well, this reminds me of some of what we talked about in our episode uh, the gods must be counterintuitive yeah about how a certain amount of counterintuitive design is Is admirable in our myths and our stories, and therefore it would make sense in our architecture as well.
1: Yes. uh, The idea there, I think, is that 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 kind of like – it was like they had to be minimally counterintuitive. They can't be so counterintuitive that it just feels random. It needs to feel mostly structured but with enough weirdness that it sticks in the memory.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and if you're looking at it like the natural environment, and that makes sense too, right? If you're uh, considering a a large hill to climb and you're sort of plotting your course up there, it makes sense that some of the the visible ledges would be more pronounced than others, or more desirable, or more interesting. Like there would be varied features, and not uh, and, and and there would be some features that might be more desirable than others. Yeah, uh, like you know, it's something that is interesting to look at with big buildings, uh, skyscrapers, and whatnot, where you see something that is you see something that's an element or that maybe it's just the very top and maybe it's a penthouse or something like that. But it does, you start stirring your mind. You're like, what kind of person lives there? What is, or what office is that? Who has access to that space in the building? Yeah. Um, And then what is it like to stand there? I have, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I have have frequently had had weird dreams where I am, especially at, at a former location that we had, where we had access to an outside terrace uh, yes. at our building. Yeah. I would have dreams though where I would be, would be in, in different, strange skyscrapers and and accessing terraces on those skyscrapers, uh, and and then looking out. and It was like an, an achievement to you know, it wasn't like I was sneaking in, but it was just it was it, I, I felt a sense of accomplishment by reaching those terraces.
1: I haven't had those specific dreams, but as somebody who ever since I was a kid has loved to climb up on things Mm – and as an adult I, I wish it were more socially acceptable to just climb up on things. As to engage an
0: with your inner yeah. goat. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I totally identify with that. Not yep. the dreams but I, I know the feeling.
0: Yeah like if I see a, a fancy terrace I mean I, I want to stand up there so I'm you know kind of terrified of heights but I still I still <laughs> want to stand on, the, on that terrace for some reason.
1: This is funny I, I have so many other neuroses and, and terrors but for
0: some reason I like heights. Yeah it's, it's, it's your inner goat I think. It's the, the, the goat like desire to uh, to stand atop something and look about.
1: Now, there's one last thing I wanted to move to before we close out this first part of uh, the discussion here. And it was a, a question about, I wonder if there are differences in um, sort of the professional aesthetics of architecture mm-hmm. versus the actual preferences like what's good for everyday people. Okay, And I was thinking about this because I was just looking at uh, one specific study. Uh, it's a fairly simple example. It by no means proves the case, but it was a little bit interesting to me. Uh, this is a study by uh, Sybil uh, Daskir and Marilyn Reed in Environment and Behavior from 2012 called Furniture Forms and their influence on our emotional response toward interior environments. So, Robert, I've got some images for you to look at here. We're looking at pictures of different furniture designs. Some are rectilinear, meaning you've got like straight, clean lines and right angles, and some are curvilinear, meaning that they have soft, rounded edges. Which of these designs looks more hip?
0: Uh, uh, Well, I don't know. That's kind of a loaded question. You mean like hip in a way where I like it or uh, hip in a way where I feel like the Uh, predominant tastemakers in society would like it architecturally tasteful Mm hmm okay I'm gonna between rounded and straight edge right yeah uh, I'm going to go with straight edge.
1: Yeah, I, I would think the same thing. I mean, maybe not everyone would, would agree. But my hunch is that the clean lines and the right angles of the rectilineal furniture would be considered a superior design by pros, like people who work in design. It looks more modern. It looks more clean. It looks more tasteful. It looks like the kind of furniture you would see in like a cool – I don't know, in like some hip furniture store that's selling cool furniture. Right.
0: The the rounded stuff honestly looks like something I would see in a, a doctor's waiting room.
1: Yes. The rounded edges, I think, could be conce- uh, perceived as kind of kitschy, right? Mm-hmm. They don't look like the choice of interior design professionals, or at least, you know, I don't know for sure, but that's my guess. But this simple survey... Found that the images containing curvilinear couches, these rounded edges made people feel more of a number of positive emotions. People felt Mm. happier. People felt more hopeful, more comfortable looking at those kind of rooms and imagining being in those kind of rooms than they did with the right-angled furniture. So I wondered. If this is correct, could a similar thing be true of our buildings? Could there be two issues actually? One is that often buildings are designed in a kind of careless, cost-cutting way with little attention to aesthetics and how that those aesthetics really impact our brains and our emotional lives – but perhaps there's another thing that even when aesthetics of built environments are taken into account, I wonder if sometimes they're oriented towards some like esoteric design standard that is appreciated by a small group of people who are deep in the world of architecture and design, but maybe not toward the maximum psychological benefit of people who live and work in in and around these buildings. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I believe so. Uh, for instance, the the tastes of the individual um, choosing the layout for an office versus the individual taste of the people working in an office?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it could be that like a certain thing looks cool when you're designing an interior space, but then it's not actually great to live in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, And and, uh, with the the sort of like planning an office layout example, I feel like it's such a different world, right? Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, someone is saying, "This is what I want the whole office to look like." This is the, the you know the, the blueprint of the office on paper, and that's different than the experience of having one particular p- corner of the office to, that is yours or has been assigned to you, and this is where you are working. Um, like it's, it's just a you know, it's a different viewpoint. One is yeah, the, the broader point. view, and and of course there are other factors as well. Like if you're designing the whole office, you might be thinking about about that individual who walks in and sees the whole office for the first time, it's more about impressing that individual than than making the uh, you know the worker or the employee happy yeah, this
1: is something I would definitely like to actually hear from architects on What, what are your thoughts about this?
0: All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, call this episode, but we will be back in which we will discuss architecture a good bit more. We will talk about brutal, cursed, and hostile architecture, especially. (laughs) In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. Head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com That's the mothership. That's where the episodes reside. But these episodes reside elsewhere as well. Anywhere you get a podcast these days, you will find us. And wherever that happens to be, uh, just uh, help us out leave uh, a nice review give us uh, a nice uh, uh, array of stars so you know whatever the maximum is we'll do Uh, it's a great way to support the show Uh, likewise what we have a merchandise store uh, still up and running if you have any holiday uh, gifts you would like to uh, obtain for yourself or others uh, that's another way to support the show but generally just tell folks about us Uh, that is probably the best way uh, to spread the word
1: huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this show or any other, to uh suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your